Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John, we'll be starting in chapter 1. That's found on page 1210. We'll be looking at 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 6. Now we will, that'll be our sermon passage for the day. Let me start the reading at the very first verse of the letter. So we'll start at 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then with our beginning our passage, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him, in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, or Jesus his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, prepare our hearts that we may have this word bound to us in soul, that our spirits may be enlivened, quickened unto life, Lord, if there be any in here who are hurting, may they be comforted. If there are any in here who are struggling with sin and temptation, may they be strengthened against it. Lord, if there be any in here who do not know you, may their hearts be pricked. May they find conviction for their sins. 
May they bow the knee to Christ now here that they may have everlasting life. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was thinking through a recent sermon series on 1 John, I read through the book several times over. And one thing came to mind time and again, and that was a Johnny Cash song, I Walk the Line, hence the sermon title. The verse in the, in the song go, I walk the line because you're mine. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Why did that come to mind? When I was reading through and through, and perhaps I was listening to a lot of country music or Johnny Cash in general, but I was thinking about how that's actually a pretty apt description of the Christian life. It's fitting for the vigilance that we must have. Now, granted, Johnny Cash is writing a love song, and this is a little different. This is a far greater love song, you could say, even. But I thought it was a good image for the vigilance that a Christian must have in their life. We are to maintain our walk in the light of the gospel, which shines forth the light of God's glory. Our hearts are oftentimes at war with sin, with our flesh. We grow weary scanning the horizons for threats. We get tangled up in worldly messes. We stumble rather than walk the line that we are called to walk. And the Christian knows this. This is no surprise. He knows that these mishaps aren't just mishaps, but are sin. And the sin is still waging war and his members. The Christian acknowledges his failure and then looks to Jesus Christ to be forgiven because we know that his love for us and the love that we have for one another is perfected in him. He is our hope. He is our trust. Now John proclaims the message which he has heard from Jesus directly. And if you look at verses 1 through 4, not only did he hear the word of life speak, but he saw him with his eyes. He touched him with his hands. The message is as real as you and me. And now John proclaims to us what Jesus said to him. He does this so that our fellowship may be complete with one another and more ultimately, complete with the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what is this message, and how does it relate to us walking the line in a manner of speaking? Well, first, that message has to do with light and darkness. Light versus darkness. The message seems simple enough. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Notice the emphasis. Not only is God light... There's a positive statement. There's a negative statement. There is no darkness in him whatsoever. There's a contrast between dark and light. 
Not only is God bathed in unapproachable light, and he wears it like a raiment, like garments, he is a source of all light. There's something quite literal about the radiance of God's glory in the form of light. Now think of Moses when he asked to see God's glory from the cleft of the rock. And his face shone with that glory in the wilderness to the point where it frightened Israel and they asked for him to be veiled. And more to John's experience, the Mount of Transfiguration or his apocalyptic vision and revelation. There is no shadow. There is no dimming in this light. By his light do we see. His pure light leads his people to see his glory in creation. It's how we rightly interpret nature. To see his glory displayed, and most importantly, that glory displayed not just in nature, but in salvation of his people. If he were not so, if God was not light, we would have shadows of darkness that could not be daunted. There'd be valleys of such torment and darkness more powerful than the creator of the universe, if God was not light. We'd be utterly blind and lost, groping for truth, for peace and safety, with no chance for reprieve. In fact, that's the world without Christ. There would be an unthinkable reality if God's light were diminished even but a little. He would cease to be God. Not only does God, being in light, speak of his radiant glory, it speaks of his character, his holiness. Think again, Moses, when he approached the the burning bush, God instructed him to remove his sandals, for he stood upon hallowed ground. The ground, the bush, the area was sanctified by the presence of God. It was made holy. When God encounters something unholy, it is either consumed or it is transformed. It can never remain the same, and the same thing goes for people. Those who profane the worship of God in his holy name met their end, their demise. They met their doom, their fate. They died. Everything must be sanctified before it comes into communion, into contact with the true, living, holy God of Israel. How amazing, then, is the word of life. Think about that all-consuming glory and light, and yet how amazing the word of life that is Jesus Christ is, that he stood amongst the unclean, the unholy, that he made it clean, that he made it holy. His presence transformed those around him. The leper was in physical contact with Christ. He touched him. And the leper was made clean. Christ was not defiled. No, in fact, he robbed the corruption of this leper, took it for himself, and did away with it, consumed it. It was transformed. And of course, how potently we have that image when Christ bested death itself 
and the grave could not contain him. Now, dear saints, I want you to understand and I want you to think about this. The creator of the universe, the one who is all-sufficient, who, do, who does not in any way, shape, or form need you or me at all. He's not dependent upon you. He's not lonely without you. Yet he has done this for you. Do you see this? Do you know it? in your heart of hearts. Dear saints, how else can you lift your eyes to heaven in praise and in worship? It's because he has made you his. He has cleansed you. He has made you holy. He has transformed you. He has consumed your unholiness, your sin. And you are able now to walk in the light according to God being in light. Verse 7 speaks of being in light, and we dwell there with him. Therefore, we must not mingle ourselves with darkness anymore. Anything of culture, of society, we are to be separate from. I'm not talking about finding our place out in the wilderness, away from all of mankind. No, I'm talking about the way we conduct ourselves, what we take in. What we put out of ourselves must be in no way mingled with darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. How can we stand in the light of Christ, that all-transforming light, if we take hold of darkness, if we still walk in darkness? If you have Christ, then the darkness does not have sway over you like it once did. Yes, dear saints, you wage war with the flesh, and sometimes you lose. Yes, sometimes you walk through the valley, the shadow of death, and sometimes you feel so beat down into the dust that you wonder if you ever belonged to Jesus. But doesn't victory come to you? Doesn't victory come to you in time? Don't you see the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in your life, applying Christ to you day in, day out? Doesn't the valley floor fade beneath your feet to give way to gentle brooks, running water, living water, that your soul thirsts after? Doesn't he gently restore you and you feel the warmth of his countenance upon you? But let me plead with you, if you do not know that comfort, if that does not mean much to you, then the suffering you have in this life is but a taste, a foretaste of what is to come. If you draw no comfort from the gospel, if the message has no transformative work, then beware, for it is marking judgment against you. But do not despair, for Christ has held himself out before you. He has held out his light before you that you may step into it. He will not turn you away. He will not find you burdensome. In fact, what does he say? That if you are burdened, if you are heavy laden, come and I shall give you rest. 
And that brings us to our second part. Acknowledging sin. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. We, we are the walk in that, and so therefore we must acknowledge our sin. Verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The light will not hide our darkness. No, in fact, it brings it out. But the light will also not prohibit fellowship when the darkness is brought out of us to wither away in his light. It is impossible not to have Christian fellowship if you are in the light where God dwells, dear saints. Not only this, but your very sins have been cleansed away from you. Verse 9 says that confessing our sins, which necessarily means that we confess Christ. You cannot confess sins without confessing Christ. It's how we share in the light-filled fellowship of which John is speaking. We must acknowledge that we do possess sin. Understand the noxious errors that are out there. That we, if we don't understand rightly our sin before a holy God, then we stand in error before him. Now, when I was at the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church this summer, I spoke with an elder representative who was there during, during the lunch hour on one of the days, and at one point he was set to go into pastoral ministry. But it wasn't in a Presbyterian or Reformed church. He was in seminary going to a holiness church. It's something akin to the Anabaptists or Nazarenes. And now they are not all the same. There are variances in these. Yet there is a common theme of misunderstanding sin. And as this man reflected of this time in life, he spoke about when he recognized the error of how they understood sin. He had to sign a statement saying that he no longer had any, that he was sinless. It was required, it was prerequisite before he could enter the ministry. But he could not read this verse faithfully with that understanding that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He couldn't say, I have no sin, and then read that verse. Because he knew he was deceiving himself. He was troubled. And he fled from it. He recognized that there's no way that I'm without sin. I still need a Savior every day. Another way of understanding these errors are often found in Rome where Mary is thought to be sinless. She was a woman just like any other person here who's a woman. She bore the flesh and sin nature that is common to us all. Mary was not without sin. No, she needed her son, her savior, just as much as we. She would never have said that she was sinless. She would scoff at the idea. We also see that error crop up in the surrounding culture, in the world. 
where there really isn't sin, there's mistakes. There's things that you don't care for, maybe. Things that don't relate to your truth. But that does not relate to God's truth and to the truth embodied, and that is Christ Jesus. We must recognize these things. We must be hard on sin because it was hard on the Savior to take your sin. He suffered immensely, more than we will ever have to suffer, dear saints, and praise be unto the Lord. But if we hold such errors, if you know people who hold such errors, to say that they have no sin or otherwise, then they make God a liar. We make God a liar, and his word is not in us. And that's a terrifying thing. That's terrifying. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. And God says we have sin. So what happens to the debate? It's done. God has spoken. We have sin and we need it forgiven. Perhaps you know this all too well, though. Perhaps you know the sin and misery. There's no chance of you denying it. Dear saints, is that you? Do you feel the effects of sin, whether it's failing yet again, falling into the same sins, the same errors, wondering if Jesus would ever forgive you again? Or perhaps it's your body hurting. It's the death of loved ones. It's poverty. It's it's being stricken by this world, being miserable. Dear saints, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And yes, we still struggle. And yes, you still have aches and pains and there's still misery. There's still the headlines that say all these terrible catastrophes. But dear saints, this time is limited. As John goes on to say, this is passing away. This life is passing away along with its pain, its sorrow. Confess Jesus now. And that seems pretty simple, and it is. And perhaps it even seems too good to be true. How do we know of such blessed things and that they are true, that he's faithful and just to forgive? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. That there is a promise of everlasting life How do we know that we are forgiven when we come to God's throne asking for forgiveness? How do we know that our sins are washed away? Well, dear saints, we must receive that news like children. We must have a disposition of children. That's what John says here. Children trust easily. They trust completely. This brings us to our third point. We must be like children. He, con- he continues in his, in his letter and he addresses us as such. Dear children, little children. It's a term of endearment. If you have children, you love them. I don't think there's a parent in here who would not give up their life to save their child. But John isn't just using the term as a term of endearment. 
a loving term, which he is, he's using it. But it is also a reminder to the saints of which John is writing, which is us now even, of our complete and utter dependence upon the Lord for sustenance. To such little children belong the kingdom of heaven. We're like nursing children our entire lives. And what a sermonic illustration that is when you watch, for those of you who have children, your children nursing at the breasts of their mothers. It's a reminder of how vulnerable they are. They cannot defend themselves. And each one of us passed through that phase in life where we could not defend ourselves. We need protection. And we, like little children, need that protection even now. Don't think that you're self-sufficient, that you can protect yourself. You cannot. And like little children, we need constant reminders too. How often have you told your children, don't do this, or you need to do that? How often do we get frustrated that they repeat the same mistakes over and over? And how wonderful is it that our Father in heaven is so much more patient than we? He does not grow weary when we fail. But what does John say? Little children, do not sin. He's writing these things. Yes, you fall into it, but do not sin. Strive always to put sin to death. But understand that when you do, that you have an advocate with the Father. You have Jesus Christ, the righteous. They put this in perspective for you. Do you know that that's your eldest brother going to bat for you? That if you belong to Jesus, that he is the firstborn in the faith, that he's your big brother going to bat for you, defending you. Your Savior goes to the Father and makes it all right. And the least we can do is be obedient children and put away sin from us. It's a cycle. Don't sin, but when you do, go to your Savior. And that's how we are accepted by the Father as children. James calls him the Father of lights. How can this Father of light accept us in Christ? What is it that John says here? It's because he, that is Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word. But it means, propitiation means that Jesus has satisfied God's wrath that was due to fall on our heads. He paid the penalty in full. He drank down the cup of judgment down to the very last drop that we may drink that sweet vintage, that sweet wine of communion for eternity at the Feast of the Lamb, of which we will partake here in a moment as a reminder of what we're practicing, of what we will do in eternity. But Christ drank down the other cup, the cup of judgment, the bitter wine. And that's how we are accepted as children. And as it says, not only for our sins, but the sins for the whole world. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life.
So what does it mean that Christ died for the whole world? Is that some sort of universal idea? That as long as you're just a good person, you'll go to heaven? It's okay that Jesus died for everybody, regardless of what they think and believe of him? No. God's not a universalist. He did limit his atonement, the atonement of Christ, to fall upon his people. But what this means here, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, it means that he was the only universal sacrifice. His sacrifice is universally applied to all who believe and put their trust in him, regardless of who and where, who they are and where they're from. No other sacrifice will do to take away sins. And not only this, but that sacrifice covers sons from all over the world. Everybody in the world is represented. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every people group has people in the kingdom of heaven who put their trust and their faith in God through Jesus. The Father wouldn't be very merciful And he wouldn't be a good judge if he did otherwise. But he punished sins in Christ and applied those, that that work, that covering of sins to people from all over. And we are to receive it like children, as God's children. But this doesn't mean that we are naive children, mind you. Verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2 parallel verses 7 through 10 in chapter 1. And gives us a standard by which we live out our Christian life. And by this we know that we come to know him. What is meant by this? That we keep his commandments. You cannot call yourself a Christian, a child of God, if you walk in darkness or you say you have no sin or you repudiate his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And what do liars not have? They do not have the word of life dwelling in them. They do not have that ark of safety. They do not have Christ. They will not experience his radiant glory. Instead, they will experience his wrath. It's troubling. It's a troubling thought. And that lie is that if we say we need no Savior, then we won't have a Savior. And it will fall upon us to suffer for our sins. That we have no need of truth. But dear saints, children of God, let us be comforted. If you confess your sins before him, if you live out his requirements for you, that you trust him completely, wholly, like a child, then you have the love of Jesus perfected in you. And it brings us to our fourth and our final point, which we will conclude with. We have love perfected. Verse 5 of chapter 2 gives us good news. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
You can't do this on your own, though. And that's the good news about this. It is not something that you do by sheer effort and grit. It's because Christ has died for you in your place that you do this. The word of life is our Savior. And whoever keeps him keeps that word. Whoever loves him has that perfected love. We acknowledge our sin before him. We walk in the light. We love Jesus by keeping his commandments to love one another and to love the Father. And God, over time, perfects that love in us that was so perfect in Jesus Christ. And it continues, John says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the very same way in which Jesus walked, in which he walked. So, dear saints, do you reflect Jesus? Do you love your Father in heaven and continually lean upon him for your life? If you do so, then you are walking in the way of Christ. John is, John is reminding us that Jesus wasn't some sort of hologram or figment of history's imagination. He was a real, living, breathing person. He is. He lived, and he died, and he was raised again for your, for your sins to be forgiven. Jesus knows the hard path that you walk. He knows the sufferings that you have. He knows because he lived them, yet without sin. He knows your sufferings. He's our high priest who knows intimately what you have gone through and what you are going through and what you will continue to go through until he calls you home or he comes again. He walked the line because he knows how easily we slip and we stumble. He kept a close watch on his heart because he knows how badly our hearts turn aside after sin. He kept his eyes wide open all the time because he knows that our eyelids grow heavy. We are dull of seeing and we do not see the threats before us. He did all these things that we may walk in the light as he is in the light. That we may acknowledge our sins before God's throne and be confident of our forgiveness. And that we may have our love perfected. He did all this for you. And so let us live as children faithfully in that. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we give thanks for your many mercies, for your goodness towards us, though we don't deserve it. We thank you that, that you love us with such real love, such wonderful love, love that covers our sins. Be with us this day that we may walk in the light as you were in the light. According to Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.